the message that we have for this morning. That's part two in our Only God series that we started last Sunday. I'd like to read for you two passages that both come from Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, and then five verses from Genesis 2. Genesis 1, 26 and 7 says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Genesis 2, starting with verse 20. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Let's pray for a moment. Lord God, thank you for gathering us here in this place on this day. Thank you for the beauty that we saw around us when we were outside just a few minutes ago. The blue sky and the sun shining on this cool spring morning it reminds us once again of all the beauty that you have surrounded us with. And it is amazing that we get to live on this amazing and fantastic planet that has been created for us to enjoy, for us to to experience all the fullness of life. Thank you for being a God of order and beauty and magnificence. And thank you for lavishing all of this upon us as well as the love that you give to us. Today I ask that as we worship you and as we continue to pick our way through your word and, and looking for nuggets of wisdom that guide us in how we live today, I pray that you will meet us here in this place, that you will receive our prayers and our worship and our praises from people who are imperfect and who've been struggling through the week, but who nonetheless love you and want to know you and want to experience you in, in more and more profound ways. God, we need your help. We need your help day in and day out. We need your wisdom for the hard decisions that are part of life. We, we need your words in knowing how to graciously work our way through the conversations that come up our, our way each day. We need to know how to represent you when we're talking with other people who struggle to believe there is a God or who've been burned by a church experience in the past or who are just angry because life has thrown so many hard curveballs their way. We pray for those this morning who are suffering through grief, loss, those who are silently dealing with an illness or a medical prognosis or cancer they haven't told anybody about. And all those folks are here in our midst today. They're part of the group that we've come to love week in and week out. We pray that you will strengthen and that you will guide and that, that we will know that you are available to us and that your 
power is at work in our lives. Lord, we realize you don't exempt us from any of the challenges that are normal to life. We pray that you will walk with us day in and day out, that you will boost up our strength and cause it to be built on a strong foundation that cannot be shaken so that by the time we leave here week in and week out, we are more prepared to deal with whatever life throws our way because you are with us and because we are with you. Use this time for your purposes and for our good and make us more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Sometimes children have an amazing perspective on love and marriage. Nine-year-old May was asked, why do people fall in love? And she said, no one is sure why it happens, but I heard it has something to do with the way you smell. That's why perfume and deodorant are so popular. Asked what falling in love is like, nine-year-old Bart said, it's like an avalanche where you have to run for your life. Alan, age 10, offered, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before, and you get to find out later on who you're stuck with. I think he's a fatalist early on at the age of 10. Seven-year-old Carrie added, love will find you even if you're trying to hide from it. I've been trying to hide from it since I was five, but girls keep finding me. Lori, age eight, was asked what her mom and dad have in common, and she replied, both don't want no more kids. An eight-year-old Gavin offered his thoughts about why married couples often hold hands. He said they, they want to make sure their rings don't fall off because they paid good money for them. <laughs> well, I don't want your rings to fall off either. And uh, this morning, uh, I borrowed from Brian Bill, a pastor in Illinois, who used these thoughts about kids to set up a sermon that he called, Marriage as it's meant to be. Marriage as, it, as it's meant to be. What an interesting concept. I think that title implies that marriage isn't always what it's meant to be as we experience it in this world of ours. Well, last Sunday we began a new series that we're calling Only God. And I mentioned that this title came from a challenge given by a man who has been mentoring a number of pastors like me through the whole coronavirus period. And his challenge a few weeks ago was this, or a few months ago actually, if you had only 10 weeks of ministry left, in your current ministry setting, what would you teach? What do you think are some of the issues that are, are most necessary and most prominent on, on God's heart and God's mind? And so thinking through this task led to this Only God series. That was the phrase that kept coming back to my mind as I was thinking through, what are the things that can only be explained by God being right in the middle of it? So I think the next few weeks are going to be filled with some really important principles from the Bible. Today we're going to look at what I'm calling Only God Part 2, and the topic is two into one. So let me just say welcome to North River. I'm glad that you're here today. Today is Palm Sunday. This is the day when Christians around the planet remember how Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem as its humble king riding on a donkey, not on a white stallion of power. Jesus said, if we truly love him, we will keep his commands. This is different from all of our other relationships. When you love somebody else, you and I try to meet their needs in life. But when we love Jesus, he says, this is shown by keeping his commands. So welcome to everybody who's here on site in Pembroke. Welcome to all of you who are a part of our online congregation today. We're glad that you are with us and that you have made this a weekly habit. 
This past week, I heard from several of you who are online. I heard from some in San Diego, from New Hampshire, from Florida, from Ohio, and somebody from Cape Cod who I had no idea was tuning in every week. For some, this is one of your first Sundays with us online. So let me say thank you. Thank you for finding us, for tuning in today. Check out our website too. I hope that you will be inspired enough to take the next step by filling out a connection card. You can download that from the My North River app that you can find on your app store, or you can send me an email, paul at northriverchurch.org. Our staff team and I would love to hear your questions and begin the dialogue with you with wherever those questions take us. Last week, we looked at four opening observations from the first chapter of the Bible, and that message was called, Only God Could Create All This. Let's jump into Only God Part 2. Here's the question that I've been wrestling with over the past week. Is marriage an outdated idea, or is it still an essential part of God's plan? Now, let me start with a word about what this sermon is not. This is not going to be a workshop on how to have a better marriage. There'll be another time for that. This is not going to be a message about same-sex marriage. I know automatically when as soon as I rise, I raise the concept of marriage, that's the question on everybody's mind. Are you going to say something about that? Are you going to shake our world today? No, I'm not going to do that. Um, this is not whether you should attend your nephew's or your co-worker's same-sex wedding. We can tackle that question another time. Instead, we're going to go back and look at marriage and human relationships from an only God perspective. And the puzzle that I have in my mind is, what is this two-in-one reality that is talked about in Genesis chapter 2? So we're going to talk about two-into-one, God's surprising plan for unity and diversity. Here's the first principle that we learn. We are all image bearers. This is actually the foundation of talking about marriage. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is one of the first things that God reveals about the nature of human beings and our makeup. Right away, we learn that God created the first man, and he called this good. The second move regarding human beings comes here in verses 26 and 27. We learn that God intended from the outset to create us in his image. This is presented as an intentional decision by God, not as an afterthought looking back, oh, isn't there a strange likeness here? But rather, it's a decision that he made even before creation. Thus, there are only two options for interpreting this statement about the image of God. Either this is a fictitious invention by Moses or some other author of Genesis, or this is information that had to come from God himself. I am taking the latter perspective, that we meet a self-revealing God all the way through Genesis and the Bible, and it starts in the opening verse of the Bible. And so I think it fits what we learned last week, and there's something significant that God reveals about his intentions. I also believe that there is a connection between being an image bearer and this two-into-one mystery that is our subject for this morning. Notice in the creation story that God creates through six waves of creation. First, there's the, the earth and the heavens and the sun, the moon, and stars are put into their place, and the land is separated from the seas. Every kind of plant life needed for life conditions on this planet appears 
Fish, birds, and animals fill the oceans, the skies, and crawl upon the earth. But only human beings are created in God's image. The heavens may declare the handiwork of God, as we saw last week from Psalm 19, yet only human beings, male and female both, are created directly in the image of God. So that raises a question. What does it mean to be created in the image of God, and what is the image of God? What does it signify to us? And you have to realize that theologians have been wrestling with that idea for literally thousands of years. One thing we know for sure, it does not mean that we are just like God. In fact, that is one of the mistakes that Eve would make that if we were looking at chapter 3 of Genesis today, she was looking for a shortcut to becoming like God. And we're all capable of falling into that same trap. Well, what does an image do? How does an image serve? A dictionary definition defines it as a representation of the original. So just as a photograph presents an image of the real thing without being the real thing itself, an image functions in the same way. Out of everything in this world, only human beings bear the image of God. And of those, only Jesus is described as being the exact representation of God's being. Human beings reflect God in several different ways. We saw last week that like God, we are relational beings. We crave relationships. We need them. We go crazy without them. That's why there's a limit on how long somebody can be put into solitary confinement when they're a prisoner of war. Like God, we have full personhood. There is intelligence, an individual will, and emotions. Take any one of those three functions away, and we are less than fully human. Like God, we are all creative beings. We express it in different ways, but we are wired to create, to improve, to make things better. And like God, we are capable of responsibility. This is why it shouldn't surprise us that God assigns the first humans responsibility for all of the animals and all of the land. To rule over the earth means that we are expected to make use of its raw materials and to care for the condition of the earth itself. There's tremendous balance here in that responsibility. Our status as image bearers has several implications for every human being. For instance, there is human dignity that we attribute to every human being, whether they believe in God or not. That dignity that belongs to a human being because we alone, out of all creation, bear the image of God. It means there's some spark of God in every human being who is alive today on this planet. Christians see dignity in every person because of that. Second, there is a value that we place upon life. Even before the command not to murder is given, we know that every single life is precious and that it matters. And we also value the idea of responsibility, that we are endowed with responsibility by God and chosen for this. We are all image bearers. Here's the second thought that my, my uh, t teaching and leadership was directed to this week, we need to understand the not good declaration that God makes in the middle of the creation story about human beings. It appears here in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone, I will make a helper suitable for him. Notice that there is a pattern in the creation story that emerges through chapter 1 and leads into chapter 2 of Genesis. Six times the Lord declares that his creative work was good. 
First, when he established the separation before the land and the seas, it says, and God saw this and it was good. When he produced vegetation on the land, it says, and God saw that it was good. When God set the sun and the stars in place to govern night and day, again, it says, he saw it and it was good. When God created birds and sea life, again, he saw that it was good. When God finished creating all the animals, we find that reference again. He saw this and it was good. Finally, after creating male and female, looking at it all, he then looks back on everything that he's created, including the male and the female, the first humans, and now he says, it was very good. Chapter 2 of Genesis gives us a closer look at the primary interest of the book of Genesis, which has to do with God and people, not just the created order. Five times, God has pronounced all of this good, and the final time, when human beings are there, he now invokes those words that it's very good. So Genesis 2 moves away and upward to a 30,000-foot view and gives us a close-up of the final part of God's creative work, his creation of human life. This is the first time we see God saying that any part of his creation is not good. So what was not good about Adam's situation? There are two levels that seem to be identified within the story. The first level was that Adam was alone on a community level. He was the only human being, and this wasn't what God had intended, that there'd only be one person on this planet, one person who was experiencing all the beauty and the splendor around us. But the second level was more interpersonal. Adam was alone on a personal intimacy level when his role would be expanded soon to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Okay, which parts of those apply to us today? Well, the first level, Adam's community aloneness, is something that's never good for any one of us. We need to be in contact with other people. It's one of the things that made the coronavirus separation so difficult for many people. We're cut off from a lot of the normal relationships and from the fellowship that goes on and the encouragement that's part of it. For those of you who are here, do you remember the the first Sundays when you began to come back here into this church experience together? It was like this breath of fresh air. It was exciting. I remember the day that we had 20 people in the room and we weren't, it wasn't just Patrick and and somebody else and me uh, in an an office room or a classroom uh, pre-taping a service that we'd only send out over the airwaves. It was just refreshing to talk to real people again. And then there's the second level. Adam's personal intimacy aloneness may or may not be shared by everyone. This important observation keeps us from misapplying God's remedy. Adam needed a community of beings who were like him. We all need this too. Adam also needed a companion for for life who would become his wife with whom he would produce a family. But do all people choose or need or feel incomplete without a married spouse? No. The Apostle Paul urged people to stay single if they could. They're better better able to serve God, he says. Jesus never married and never gave the appearance of even having a dating relationship. Yet he loved greatly and was loved greatly by others all throughout his ministry years. Today, many single people find great fulfillment in serving their church, their larger family, their neighbors, whoever it may be, and we are blessed because of that. There are two solutions that appear 
here to the not good problem that God finds with Adam as the only human being on the face of the earth. The first one may surprise you, that God gave Adam meaningful work. This observation that this is not good and that Adam is alone and that God is going to provide a suitable helper comes up twice. The first time, in response to that, God provides Adam with meaningful work. This shows up in verse 19, the very next verse after we find that not good statement. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. So, put this in context. Right after God says that this is not good, that Adam is alone, you'd expect that God would instantly introduce him to Eve. But he doesn't. At least that's not his first step. I find this fascinating. Instead, God gives him an assignment. He brings the animals and the birds for Adam to name. Think of it. Adam was complete. He had fulfilling work. He was created in God's image. Everything was good about the earth around him. It's the most pleasant place to live of all time. We don't have a deeper account that tells us what Adam was thinking here. Was there dialogue between him and and God about this problem? Was the Lord trying to get Adam used to the idea that he needed to be with his own kind as he's seeing all these animals and birds and, and such come to him and he's naming them? Did he notice something? Does he notice, hey, there's Mr. Giraffe and there's Mrs. Giraffe and there's the lion and there's a lioness and what's that say about me? But that dialogue isn't there. We can only wonder. But there was another assignment that God was preparing Adam for in starting a family and in multiplying. And this is where God says for a second time in verse 20 of chapter 2 that he will provide a helper for Adam. And so God created the woman. Verse 21 and 22. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man And he brought her to the man. God's stated intent was to create what's called here a suitable helper. Lest you think this is a second-class term or a derogatory term, you need to see how this word helper is used in Old Testament language. In Psalm 10, verse 14, it is spoken of of in context of God, where the writer of the psalm says, You are the helper of the fatherless. In Psalm 118, verse 7, David writes, the Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. Several times in the Old Testament, this same word is used of God to show a positive description that God is the greatest helper we could ever imagine. Based on this, the first woman who is created is worthy of the same words that are used to describe the way that God helps us. God is never beneath us. God is greater than us in most ways, most every way. The context of Adam's naming the animal's assignment suggests that God was showing him that he needed a partner for life just as he saw throughout the animal kingdom. And so he presents this woman creative out of his side. She is like Adam in that she is completely human, also an image bearer of God. But she is also unlike Adam in that she is completely female. Every guy in the room is saying, thank the Lord for that. She is all woman. Every part of her in body and in gender. 
just as Adam was all male in body and gender, alike but unalike, complementary but completely different, each one completely human and each one completely different in their makeup. This different accentuates the miracle of the two-in-one mystery that we're talking about today. It is then that God announced that this was very good. If we tuck chapter 2 back within the larger context of all that we see in chapter 1, we see in verse 31 that God saw all that he had made and he calls it very good. So God says from the outside that his creation of man and woman is good. It is very good. So remember, Genesis 1 is the 30,000-foot view. Genesis 2 is the close-up view that says, how did this happen? Is there more to the story that God wants to bring us into in terms of the creation of human beings? And this includes the commitment that we see developing between Adam and Eve. Here's the big idea for this morning. Marriage is an essential part of God's plan for community, diversity, intimacy, and for loving others as ourselves. And it's here that we find God's new kind of oneness, where two become one. Chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. That is why a man leaves his father and mother, and he is united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame couple of observations here about what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 2. The first is that marriage was God's idea. Think of this, if I repeat myself, Adam was complete, he had fulfilling work, he was created in God's image, and God had pronounced all of this good. Then God creates Eve, just as with the man creating woman was completely God's idea. And again, at the end of this, God says, this is very good. It says that he put Adam into a deep sleep and Eve was formed from a part of his side. Most of our English translations say that she was created from Adam's rib. If you open your Bible, there's probably an asterisk next to that word rib because the Hebrew word here actually re refers to one's side. Perhaps a rib and, so and something more. It seems to suggest inequality between the sexes that God used material from Adam's side near his heart. For this first couple, marriage is the pathway or the process of two becoming one. This is God's strange divine math. One and one usually don't add up to one. We teach our children that from the time that they are very little, but then we read Genesis and they get confused. This is the mystery. How does this happen? What is it saying? They are united together and they become one flesh. This is the deepest kind of intimacy that we can possibly know that is being described here. Up until recent developments, marriage always referred to the coupling of opposites. Within the last few years, the dictionary has begun to change that definition. And we see here that Adam and Eve are alike in that they are both fully human and they are both fully image bearers of God. But they also are profoundly unlike each other as male and female with each one, body and gender, wonderfully correspond to God's design. The terms one flesh and naked and without shame appear side by side, and they refer to a deep 
profound level of intimacy. Yes, sex is a part of the picture that is wonderfully described here. But even more, Genesis is, is describing something that sex alone cannot achieve. Any two people can have sex. And that happens all the time in, in our world. But real intimacy is what we long for and not all find it. In fact, there are many marriages that exist without intimacy in the pastoral counseling that I've done over the last 37 years, one of the things that I have found is the loneliest people on earth are not single people. They are married people who are stuck within a marriage where there is no intimacy, deep-seated sharing of the soul. And the Bible seems to be pointing to this as part of God's desire for all who are married. Naked and without shame is part of the key. It describes a deep trust and such profound intimacy that two people can say, here in the arms of the other, I find the safest place on earth. Here is that one place where there's no hiding, there's no shame, there's no shading of the truth. And this is part of what leads to that kind of intimacy. Trusting every part of oneself to the other. Here we find that the marriage of a man and a woman was God's original diversity plan. They are alike, but profoundly unalike. Have you ever noticed that? For those of you who are married within your own marriage, you marry this person, you say, I think, you know, she thinks like me, or, or he understands the world like me, and then within a week of getting married, you discover this is a completely different person that I woke up with. We are completely unalike in the way that we think, in the way that we are wired and that's part of God's wonderful plan, one fully male, one fully female, yet both together bearing the image of God, together having at least the capability for creating life, reflecting God again. When Jesus was asked about marriage and divorce in the Gospels, Matthew 19 contains this passage. He quoted from Genesis 2, the same passage we're looking at this morning. And he asked this question, haven't you read this, that it was this way from the beginning? In effect, Jesus seems to be saying, don't mess with God's design, whatever you do. This is the reason, he says, that, that we leave mo mothers and fathers as God creates new families. Marriage was never intended for one spouse to control another or to manipulate another, but to unite family units in harmony. Each new family unit is intended to become a source of blessing for each member of the family and, that everyone, and for everyone else who enters that household. For any children who may come to that family or be adopted into that family officially or unofficially. This is why marriage is a value worth upholding and worth doing well. When marriage is done well, it becomes the backbone of a healthy society. When marriage is not done well or torn down, society's problems seem to multiply. This is why we should also be very careful about redefining marriage. Redefining marriage is essentially declaring that at some point we think we know better than God or we know better than Jesus who commented about this same passage in Genesis 2. Redefining marriage in some way is moving away from God's original diversity plan. 
despite this, it would be a mistake for us to think that marriage is done for. It's not going away. The most recent census material shows that over the past decade, we have slightly declined from 52% of American population to 50% who have been married within the last decade. But there are more people married today than ever before because our population has also grown. It is a popular institution, despite what you may hear. 50% of adults 20 or older have lived with a married spouse over the past decade. This is also not a reason for us to think that we should clobber LGBT people or those who may disagree with the perspective that I'm putting forth this morning. The latest census also shows that only 1.7% of all the marriages in Massachusetts are same-sex marriages. So their existence is not really the problem. The bigger problem is when marriage is used to control, belittle, harm spouses, or harm children. That's what makes it unpopular, if it is. And despite all this, across the United States, 76% of all men who are married are in their first marriage today, and 77% of all women who have ever been married are in their first marriage today. It's amazing how much marriage survives and is successful, and you don't hear that in the media. We only hear about the number of divorces. And divorce is at the lowest point that it's been in the last 32 years, as the numbers have been coming down since 1990. So we can have great compassion and tolerance for the fact that we live within a society where there are others who disagree with a biblical viewpoint. Our culture seems to say, don't ever say anything that could be possibly perceived as hurtful, even if it's true. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. Totally different perspective. His command shows up in Matthew 19 when Jesus affirms God's intent with marriage. It says, haven't you read... That at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so Jesus adds his own thought here. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Christians show that we love Jesus by keeping his commands and following his wisdom. Part of our obedience comes in learning to love our neighbors as ourselves, and part of that comes from affirming what Jesus affirms, including marriage. When you think about the role that marriage has played throughout all time, think about this. Before there was the church, before there was a government, God created the family, the most basic unit of social order and for human well-being. As culture shifts and redefines marriage, it will be up to future generations of Christian people to reflect to the world the image of God through a God-honoring balance of love and truth in, a way that, in the way that we live our lives and the way that we treat those who disagree with our perspective. And for Christians, Jesus is the secret sauce that makes this deepest kind of intimacy possible. For we not only bear the image of God those who are alive to Jesus are being remade by God in the image of Jesus. And so it becomes important for us to uphold this value, uphold something that God has started in the wake of a society that in, in a lot of ways contains many elements that would like to tear it down. 
Some of the statistics that I read this week are kind of disheartening. 88% of all of the sex scenes that we see in movies and television today are among unmarried people. It's almost as if they've forgotten that the other 50% of us are out there. The sex and porn industry tries very, very hard to separate intimacy from marriage. Intimacy from sex as well. And so there are enemies that want to tear down the very thing that becomes the bedrock of our society. I think it's important every once in a while that we hear about something that was important enough for God to take parts of the opening two chapters of the Bible to give us a window of something that is vitally important and is there to encourage all, even if it's not something that all of us are participating in, nonetheless, we benefit from the blessings when God blesses the family, when God makes strong families. And he does that through marriages of people who dare to love each other as image bearers of God with the help of Jesus as the secret sauce. I hope that we can encourage you this morning. Here's the simple reality that I'm trying to get across. Marriage is an essential part of God's plan for community, diversity, intimacy, and for loving others as ourselves. And the secret to two becoming one is Jesus in the center of it all. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the time that we have here to worship together and to praise you. Thank you for music and song and scripture and prayers and, and for the fellowship that continues around the coffee table and throughout the week. And I ask that you will continue to bless us and that you'll give us the heart and the perspective not only to read your word, but to have our, our minds held captive by truth in the midst of an age that is presented with so many other ideas that wander away from truth. Give us the kind of hearts that desire to be known by others, that cause others to see Jesus in us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.